0: Bye.
1: To Sword and Laser, episode 180. Uh, This is the third of four interviews that we did at the Nebula Awards in May. Now, you may remember Veronica Belmont was traveling at the time. So, Josh Lawrence, our community manager, among many other things, jumped in and helped us out. And we got to sit down and talk with Emily Jang. So we're at the Nebulas, and Emily Jang has joined us. I'm, I'm saying it right, right?
0: I will respond to that, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you.
1: How do you say it?
0: Um, a f- a different ways, depending on who my audience is. If I'm speaking to an American, which mostly I am, I'll say Jang, simply because the way I would pronounce it in Mandarin, and my Mandarin's not the best either, would be Jiang, uh-huh. which a lot of people associate with John. Which then people would pronounce or spell J O H N, which is not the same as Jiang. Right. Um, and so Jang is closer to how you would actually spell my last name, which is J I A N G. Man,
1: transliteration sucks.
0: It's really interesting. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating, and yeah, no, and then I grew up in Dallas, Texas, too. So I had a lot of like really interesting attempts at pronouncing my name people try to pronounce the j like as if it were a spanish j (laughs) because that's the language that they were a little more familiar with was awesome
1: my girlfriend's mom back in college uh had taught french in texas and so she spoke french but Uh with a texas accent
0: i love it
1: yeah that's fantastic really interesting (laughs) Well, um, let's start off talking about uh, Summoning the Phoenix, okay? Uh, because that's, uh, that's your most recent thing. Mm-hmm. It's your biggest thing. Yes. And uh, some folks in our audience, I know, have heard about it, but, but tell us a little bit about for those who haven't.
0: Okay, so the official title is Summoning the Phoenix, Poems and Prose About Chinese Musical Instruments. And I tell everyone, it's going to be the best book of poems and prose about Chinese musical instruments you will ever read, because it's the only one. Um and it's a picture book illustrated beautifully by April Chu. And it's published by Shen's Books, the newest imprint of Lee and Lowe Books, which is a multicultural New York based publishing company in the United States. And they all do, they only do multicultural children's and young adult books. And so it's kind of um, been an honor to, to go with them um, because I think their staff is very knowledgeable in what I'm very interested in, which is diversity and multiculturalism. Within diversity, so...
2: Yeah, perfect fit.
0: Yeah, like. very, very lucky. So,
2: What made you choose to do it in the form of a picture book instead of a novel?
0: Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I'd always wanted to be a novelist first. That was my original training. I have an MFA in creative writing, and I was working on these young adult novels that I thought, you know, were really close, We're almost there. Um, but with, it was actually... I learned about all this Chinese musical instrument knowledge through researching a young adult novel Mm -hmm. that was all Asian all the time and set in a, you know, alternate ancient China um, where people were magical. (laughs) And um, I had to... Long story short, I had to really narrow down my focus in terms of the magic because um, what I thought I was coming up with, um, which was the magic system based on Chinese medicine and qi and the whole, like, you know, your, your, your magic comes from this life force within you, the way that qi flows within you, mm. um, was actually, had been done quite a bit <laughs> in various things because I told my, my friend who's a Buddhist nun and my best friend in um, MFA in the MFA program at St. Mary's and she said when she heard about my story and my premise, she's like, Oh, that sounds really great. It sounds like Naruto, you know, the very popular manga and anime series, which I had at that point never seen. And without never seeing it or knowing anything about it, I said, no, you're absolutely wrong because, you know, my magic system is better because it's going to be incorporating all sorts of like, you know, not only the, just the chi, you know, um, the whole chi knowledge of, 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 Chinese medicine, but also um, elemental magic as well. And then she's like, well, that sounds even better. You need to watch Avatar, the last airbender. <laughs> and I said, no, like my, it's, it's unique. It's, it's something special. And this is, again, something when you try to write a certain kind of world that you think is so awesome and special and new to you because it is new to you, you have to do your, res- your market research on what else, is, what else is out there. And I did eventually watch you know, a lot of Naruto and a lot of all of Avatar Last
1: Year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. And I already knew about them because I, I'm a huge fan of Miyazaki. Yeah, Miyazaki's right. just a genius. A huge fan of him for forever. Did you ever um, read
1: uh, Masterly and Number 10 Ox stories?
0: Yes. The oh. Barry Hugart. Actually, that was one of my suggestions. And Okay, never mind. Like, Yeah, no, I actually read them in college. Before I started getting really critical about... Um, the content of what I was reading, and I haven't read them since because I don't want the suck fairy to come and say, "Oh my gosh, he appropriated or whatnot." I have very fond memories of that series, and I wish he, you know, had continued publishing. I know that he, you know, didn't because of various publishing kerfuffle, contracting mm-hmm. things. Oh, I I mean, I, you know when I really love something I, I I'm a little nerd and go do research wish oh, I wish, <laughs> I wish so. we would
1: have known that because we read that as one of our book picks. Uh-huh. It would have been great to have you on our wrap up section
0: yeah, that yeah. would have been amazing <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so I mean I have really great fond memories of that of that you know, and he actually took the story of the stone, um, which was a very famous chinese novel in um, in in uh um, and uh, retold it in a very humorous way. That was very, very accessible to Western readers and English readers. Yeah, so.
1: I've, I've been wanting to read. Is it Journey to the West?
0: Journey to the West is the Monkey King story.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and and peop, some people, not people, have warned me off. But they're like, it's not going to be the same. Like that's it's a much older take.
0: Right, and. Though if there's several versions, if you're talking about the Arthur the Whaley version, I, I don't remember his first name, but I think it's the Whaley version, the one that's perhaps the most famous. Um, it is a little, it is a little old-fashioned. Yeah, um, is there a better one? Um, well, okay, so i don 't know what 's better because again it 's one of those stories, and my parents didn 't tell me that many when I was little, but that was one story they told me, and so that 's how i 've learned about the Monkey King was through my dad telling me these stories and um, so that to me is the best story <laughs> right um, and I'm trying, I mean and the thing is about the Monkey King is that it 's just retold so many times it 's the most famous. Story in all of China In a lot of Asia You know it's just constantly Dragon Ball Z is a retelling of the Monkey King You know even Jing Yang um, Who did his comic book American Born Chinese He used the Monkey King And, um, and it's just been around for forever um, And so I think With each new retelling It'll hopefully illuminate something new And there's also operas and stuff You right. know Chinese operas and stuff That you can go
1: now you, you mentioned that you ended up with the picture book and the poems and mm-hmm. the music because you started wanting to write novels. Do you still want to write novels?
0: Absolutely. Um, because in some ways, writing a novel, as, as weird as or counterintuitive as it is, it's a little easier than writing picture books. Because with picture books, everything needs to be just right. And with novels, you can get away with sprawl. You can get away with, um, and, and with picture books, you have to really be very attuned to the age range of your of your um, audience. And um, like my poems are very young, but originally some of them were too young, and some of them were too old, or you know. And so I had to really rewrite a lot of those. You know poems and the prose too to make sure that it was age appropriate, which is is a hard thing to do when you're not of that age. Um, and so I think with novels, it's because if you think about like the lifet- your lifetime of reading, right? How many years do you spend really reading picture books? Does the average reader spend reading picture books? Maybe a, a few of their many many years, but we read lots and lots of novels. And so I think it's just as a as a a, a passionate reader, a lifelong reader. You just have so many more novels in you than you do picture books, unless you actively do your research, which I had to do. Um, so it was kind of cool. And, and sorry, to get back to my, I do these tangents, That's right? fine. No, so like to,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but to get back to the origin of what, how this picture book happened, and I wrote a little bit about on um, Scalzi's The Big Idea. Mm-hmm. Um, which was I thought, oh, research for a novel, and how cool is this that I um, am making up this world, right, this all-Asian, all-the-time world, and it's going to be, like, magic and elemental, but, okay, it needs to be more than just that. Let's make it, let's narrow the focus of the magic even more. And I thought, well, what's one of my passions? What's music? Let's make these musical, like, magical musicians. One of my favorite books of um, all time, was Dragon Singer by Anne McCaffrey. And one of the reasons why I loved it so much was because it was a mus- about a musician, you know? And, and uh, Serafina, same thing. Serafina by Rachel Hartman, same thing. I was like, this has got everything I love, dragons and music <laughs> and magic. And it was just really cool. And so, and so I thought, well, why not just kind of combine my, my passion? Now, there was an issue um, when I wanted to do this new... Uh, all-Asian-all-the-time magic system. I didn't know very much about Chinese music (laughs) or Chinese traditional instruments. I couldn't even at that time really tell you how to pronounce any of these instruments in Mandarin, even though I can speak some. So I did a a ton of research. I read, like, books, and I researched on the Internet, and all for, like, what I say is ultimately ended up being a 3,000-word picture book. <laughs> it was a ton of work, but it was so worth it because I really wanted to spread the love of Chinese music. The reason why I wanted to do this picture book, and for younger readers especially, is because while I was doing my research for my my ninja world, um, for YA readers, I was getting a sense that a lot of the people who are writing about these tra- traditional Chinese music instruments were very much... They had an attitude about them, and it was not super overt. But the, the context that I was getting was, Chinese music is not as good as Western music, which I thought was really kind of ridiculous, mm-hmm. because Chinese music has a thousands of year old traditions. Some of these instruments are thousands of years old. And what we consider classical music in our Western culture like the violin, piano, those instruments have only been around a few hundred years. And so just in comparison, there's really no comparison. Um, And so, and I thought, this is just kind of sad and ridiculous that the people who are reading about Chinese music now in English are getting this sense of, and, and, and some of it might be, coming from people who were experts in China, you know, even that their own culture is inferior in some way to western culture. And I thought this is just not okay. Let's let's kind of celebrate how awesome Chinese music is and the, and traditional Chinese music can be and the inst- how cool these instruments are cuz they are very very cool. And um and it really hit home with me too when I was in Beijing a couple years ago and trying to find with the help of a a friend who lives there, trying to find a concert that actually featured traditional Chinese instruments, it was really difficult. There were many, many concerts that were like pop pop music concerts and or just like Western orchestra concerts. But Mm -hmm. to find the one that I that in the 2 week period that I was in Beijing was really quite a challenge. And wow, that's surprising. Yeah, I think so it would be that
1: hard. I mean, yeah. I, I get it why, a, like popular music is going to dominate pretty
0: much everywhere. Right. Yeah. But it was surprised me that there were more western orchestral concerts than there were Chinese. Yeah. There was one. I went to it. It was awesome. Um but so I so, so I thought, you know what, let's just spread the love and I looked looked at the picture book and if you start young, you if you expose readers at a very young age to all sorts of things, they absorb it like mm-hmm. a sponge. And then in what's, what would be no- otherwise known as weird or other if they're older is just kind of...
2: It's normal. Normal, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah,
0: yeah. so and that's why I write for kids too, cause, and in younger, younger audiences too, because their minds are just open. And they're also closed in certain areas too, because they've also absorbed lots and lots of stuff. I mean, you absorb so much about what's okay and what's not okay, you know, even by the age of three. Yeah. But again, to just kind of spread the love through pictures and spread the love through, through literature, I think is, it's really powerful.
1: You're programming the future.
0: <laughs> really? Seriously? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, just helping, helping make the future a better place. <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, of the music that you listen to while doing research for the Mm -hmm. picture book, are there particular pieces that you would recommend to people seeking out this kind of experience (laughs) for the first time?
0: It was really hard to find music. Um, I would go to YouTube <laughs> really okay um, because that 's how I found all the music that I know of and or um, there are several groups in this and especially in the San Francisco Bay Area that are fantastic um, and um, that I, I know of and think have seen them perform live and or on YouTube. The one that I have the, the closest association with is the California Youth Chinese Symphony. They are lo- located in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they're headquartered in Santa Clara. And they are this amazing group of you know of of students who play beautifully. And a lot of them came to my book parties and demonstrated oh, really? some of these instruments. Yeah, we had four book parties, and people came to all four of them and and demonstrated. And it just really brought to life. You know how cool these instruments are.
2: That's the perfect way to,
0: yeah. Yeah, and especially because they're young. Like we had the best one was when we had a a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old, a twelve-year-old, and a a thirteen-year-old. And they were all like, yeah, it was like this, like the it was (laughs) like like this, yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. And they were so awesome and so good and just so you know wonderful about sharing their love. And a lot of them have training from you know Western instruments first, and then they transfer Mm -hmm. onto onto uh, the Chinese instruments. So. Um, so, I would definitely check them out. Um, Melody of China is a professional group in San Francisco, and they 're fantastic and They do wonderful um, music educational programs as well um, and they have uh, youtube uh, YouTube videos as well um, and Then the stuff I found in China is, was really difficult to find like even an album of just traditional Chinese. You know music, mm-hmm. so I I would just go to YouTube. There's just really not that much around. And actually, I'm right now in the middle of figuring out an album as a compa- that's a companion uh, musical companion to my picture book because. Wow. Well, because I mean, it's that kind just makes of makes perfect sense. It makes sense. I mean, like, how can you not have a book about music that people? Are not so familiar with that your readers are not so familiar with, and not have music. Oh,
1: can you imagine? I don't. You probably have imagined like a a digital book or an ebook that can play the music while you're.
0: Yes, that's actually sounds so amazing. That's Mm -hmm. the next project after my album. Is that I want to do an app, Um, and and again I live in Silicon Valley, which is of course program Nirvana. So like programmers are are everywhere, and I'm hopefully going to partner with someone. We'll see um, to develop. An app for oh, my right. yeah because um, again it's the interactivity and and kids are consuming information in so many different ways not just books you know and I think the the visual and the auditory stimuli would be just really a fun educational experience.
1: Now you are a musician as well. Yes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your music before. Okay. The picture
0: book. So the music before. So I. Um, I am a classically trained pianist, and for a long time that 's how I like viewed myself was like i 'm a pianist and um, played the piano when I was in Texas growing up and then a little bit in California, and uh, even competed at the state level. Um, so I was pretty decent um, when I was a teenager and then as soon as I Texas got is a big state, Texas <laughs> is a big state, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, well, this is kind of cool um, um, and then when I went to college, I went to Rice University and I, uh, started singing more and actually I started singing when I was, uh, my senior year in high school, when I went graduated from Palo Alto high school, um, and had an amazing teacher named Kathy Fujikawa who was so disciplined and so good. And she really just, you know, made me realize that singing can be really disciplined and awesome too. Cause all the choirs I'd been in before were not so strict, um, and so when I went to Rice, I was hoping for more of that same thing. And I was also hoping to join an a cappella group. But at the time, there was only one, and it was a, a men's quartet. <laughs> so there was very little chance they would accept me, because they were, not, not only were they full, but I'm not.
1: They had four people, and They'd, they were all men.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I would not be able to sing in their range at all. <laughs> and so my friend Laura and I, co-founded one day this a cappella group and it's called the Rice Harmonics and we've, you know, thankfully they're still around which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's like oh, there's a legacy. How cool is this? Because we did it just because we wanted to sing and there was no other venue to sing in that was like collegiate a cappella at the time. Um, And so I've been actually singing a lot more now than I've been uh, playing the piano um, So now I'm more a, like a choral singer A mm-hmm. group singer Which is very different from a soloist but, um, but the thing about having music Constantly in your life I think is, is Something kind of joyous and awesome um, Because as an artistic medium Because I, I compare music a lot to literature And how there's a lot of parallels you can draw, but there's also differences. And especially when I was doing my MFA and, and you know really being very serious about what are the what are the terms for the craft of writing that I can use and what are the the theories that I can apply to my to make my own writing stronger. I was also cons- uh, thinking of it in terms of how as a musician too, because I've been making music way longer than I've been. Um, Technically, writing no, right? right, and so or writing seriously for publication, right, they and so have
1: state literary competitions.
0: Well, <laughs> well, actually, they do. <laughs> like yes, when yes. I was when I was uh, in seventh grade, um, my fourth grade English teacher, who was my Miss Boroff, who was my my biggest fan, and she had so much faith in me as a writer that when, even when I was in the seventh grade, and she was still in touch with me, she entered my a poem of mine in the text... Texas State Poetry Contest for like yeah for students and it won second place and it was like one of these moments of wow you know people will take me seriously if I keep doing this you know writing thing so so I think you know having teachers and amazing teachers that really believe in you early on is you know so so pivotal to how you see yourself you know in the future and in what you think you're good at in the future um and um, But I'm sorry, going back to the music and the parallels between music and, and literature, which was they're both requirements that as a product you can hold in your hand, like you can hold a CD in your hand technically or a tape or mm. a record, LP. You can hold a book in your hand in much the same way. And yes, they're all going digital eventually. But you can still hold these these products in your hands, but you can't consume them without investing time in them. Mm-hmm. And so that to me and so they're both very experiential in that way and so you have to so they both have these very core components of pacing, rhythm, and even when you're reading aloud sound, you know, that that are very pivotal to the experience of your of your of your listener that you have you as a creator have to think about um, very carefully.
1: And that's still true in digital, right? Yes, there, absolutely. The, the, none of that changes.
0: None of that actually changes. So, yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> you still need time yeah. to consume, you know, your your novel on your e-reader or your song on your MP3 player. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. 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 so
1: That's cool. No, that's cool. It's it's an essential part of artistic creation that I don't think people think of as often. So,
2: that's a really good point.
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
2: Well, Terp Kristen on our Goodreads forum wanted to know if your stories are based on your real life experiences you've already answered a lot of that in terms of like your involvement with music but is there additional elements that you've drawn into both the short stories you've done and the picture book
0: that's a good question um, my personal goal when I write fiction especially and even most of my poetry nowadays is to write as far away from my experience as possible Mm. in terms of the character, who the character is. So, um, for example, in my young adult contemporary novel that I'm finishing and revising right now, she is Chinese-American like me, but of this era, unlike me, right? A teenager of this era, unlike me. And raised in San Francisco Bay Area, unlike me, and she 's also five foot ten inches, or you know really technically five foot nine and three quarter inches because who wants to be five ten when you 're female? some people do, but she didn 't <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. and so which is unlike me, and she plays the cello unlike me, but there 's enough similarities like I made her a musician like me that i can I can give a feeling of of authenticity to who she is. And because she technically looks like me cuz she's Asi- you know Chinese American, people will be more likely to map her to me. Right. But she's not at all me. And so um, as a fiction writer that's my personal goal cuz I don't really want to read another story about someone like me, I'm kind of... I know who I am. I'm kind of bored with myself. <laughs> you know? I always read You're fiction... you like, get enough of me yeah, Exactly, right? <laughs> like, who, why do I need more of this? Um, well, I, I'm really write fiction per, on a personal level to really, like, get to know someone else and to also, through the fact of, like, running away from myself, find kind of a, a common universa- universality of human experience in a certain way. So... And I did make a very conscious decision to write, um, you know, characters of color and diverse characters. Um, and I was on a panel about how do uh, wait what what can all writers do to increase diversity earlier with Nalo Hopkinson, Sophia Semitar, Anne Leonard, and uh, Sunil Patel. And then Chip De- Delaney came and was our fifth, our our extra panelist, and it was awesome. Like, your
1: panel. It was it amazing.
0: <laughs> Someone said, what, what like, it? "Oh, and
1: Delaney too." Yeah, yeah. no, okay. just okay. by the way,
0: because he had so much awesome things to say, yeah. you know, and he was so clearly invested in, in it as well. So it was it was awesome. It was the best panel. Um, but 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 I had, and I and I basically you know insisted on saying something really quickly at the very end, which is when people write about. Um, underrepresented populations. Um, And it doesn't matter who you are when you write about these under... There's a a fear of backlash and appropriation, you know, accusations. And especially from people in the majority writing people of the minority populations. There's that fear of, well, I get it right. Um, And as a person who is technically in the United States of a minority being an Asian American and female... Um, I also worry about that greatly because when you have an audience of underrepresented readers who are really starving to see not only see themselves in these stories, but also find these characters that feel like themselves, you're going to get it wrong eventually for some of these folks because... We are a population of individuals, and none of us all are exactly the same. And the example that I give is through, um, for example, Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club. When that came out, um, and I was young enough then to get a lot of, oh, this is, how wonderful is it that your culture is being represented and blah, blah. And I was like super excited about it too, but at the same time when I read it, i couldn 't connect to it because she 's of a de- different generation than me right. Amy tan her parents don 't even speak the same language my parents do other than English right mm-hmm. um, and she was b- r- raised in San Francisco I was raised in Dallas, Texas. Her family was not um, was more of a working class. Um, and, and mine were upper middle class because my parents came and got their degrees, graduate degrees, here in the United States. So our experiences are very different, um, but they're both authentic Chinese American experiences. It's just that I couldn't connect with it, you know? And so that's why I decided to write too, because. If I feel a disconnect, others will too. And the way that we solve this is that we just need more stories. <laughs> we need right. more stories so that it's no longer tokenism. So that it's no longer the single story, um, the you know the one story that everyone knows. It's many, many different stories that many people could know, or a few people could know. But you know, we just need more diversity.
1: Yeah, it feels like. What you're hitting on is the fact that ethnicity and race are only a portion of what makes us up, right? Absolutely. And and we all have so much else that makes us who we are. Mm -hmm. And we can still identify with each other. I think that's one of the greatest things about the Internet is finding those other people that you would have never met otherwise. Yes,
0: finding your tribe on the Internet. The Internet makes everything awesome. (laughs) And so, yeah, finding those people on the internet who love the same things that you love and respond similarly similarly, excuse me, to the same things that you respond and and that and that they could live in like Czechoslovakia, you know and you could live in the United States or they could live in Africa, you can live in Iceland, you know, and yet you can find your tribe yeah. and that 's really awesome.
1: We had a couple other questions from Turp, Kristen uh, about. Uh, what your favorite genre is to read And if you have anything obscure that you'd recommend
0: Okay, so <laughs> um, My favorite genre My favorite go-to is fantasy Absolutely um, It has always been my comfort reading Ever since I discovered Andrew Lang's fairy books And the Oz books And um, and um, all the um, You know the Anne McCaffrey books, as problematic as they are now, I loved them back then, you know and and they fed this this curiosity in me to just really again like figure out how other people work who are not like me and um, and fantasy will take you you know into these completely different cultures, and you have to like it 's like puzzle you know puzzling it together, these cultures and it 's just so awesome um, so that 's my go to and then. I love science fiction too, of course, and historical fiction. So basically, whatever, however much I can like, learn when I read is, um, is something that gives me great pleasure. Um, what was the second part of your question?
1: Uh, anything obscure to recommend.
0: So I was going to recommend the Barry no. Hugart books. <laughs> <laughs> which which I, I also hesitate. I'm going to recommend them with a caveat that I haven't read them since college. Mm-hmm. And I've only been recently, within the past five years or so, really educating myself with with what's, what, is, um, th- what is going on in terms of the, f- the forward-thinking folks in, in, in the fields of, of diversity. So I don't have that knowledge...
1: You didn't read them from that perspective, sort yeah.
0: Of, yeah. Yeah. So, and again, I'm afraid the suck fairy will come and, and and kill my my love of it. So I'm I'm not going to reread them, but um, but another one that you know, I mean, a lot of my favorite favorites were like, hold on, I actually wrote these down. Um, Tamara Pierce is, of course, my all-time one of my all-time favorites. I, I love the trope of the girls who kick butt, you know, and especially in a society where they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those. Favorite tropes of mine because it turns everything that you know they know on their head, um, and of course another popular one would be Graceling by Kristen Cashore, um, and then another one that is really recent. I'm reading. I'm only like one chapter into the arc, and I want to make sure I get the, the title right. Is okay, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's well? I'm going to say um, right now it's either. Snow is Ashes or Ashes is Snow. It's one of those titles in. Oh, it's
2: using the interwebs, right? Google will save us. (laughs) Google
0: will save us. Ashes and and Snow. Ashes and snow, okay. and um, I and I can't wholeheartedly recommend it because I haven't finished it yet. But the first the few chapters be could be a horrible ending. <laughs> I right. Yeah, but I'm reading the arc, and the and the first few chapters. And you know how when you read a book, and the first few chapters, you're like, yeah, this is hitting all my like happy, mm. happy, happy points. This is hitting all my favorite tropes. It's absolutely hitting all my favorite tropes, like fairy tales, and this girl, like, fighting, dueling a guy that's, like, sort of her love interest, and she's an orphan. All of that wonderful stuff that I love in fantasy, it's it's absolutely hitting. Um, And then I was going to, hold on, recommend, um, which you, again, might have heard of, because... a lot of my reading is through the library. Um, is *The Thief* by Megan wayland Turner? Um, in that whole series, *The Queen of Atolia*, *The King of Atolia*, and *A Conspiracy of Kings*. I think Megan is just absolutely brilliant as a writer. Her sentences and the way that she constructs scenes, and the way that she, you know, so tightly releases information is just absolutely stunning it requires people to really read really slowly and closely which is not usually what I do when I read but it's worth the work and it's worth the effort um, for me personally and and so there again The Thief was a Newberry Honor book like way back when and the other two are definitely like YA or adult (laughs) Um, because a lot more brutality happens in the second one especially well, those are some of my favorite, um, favorite. And Serafina, of course, by Rachel Hartman. Anything by Catherine Valenti, and um, who I'm sure everyone knows. Like um, I just love the way that Cat puts words on the page. You know, it's just so lush. I just Started
2: reading uh, in the Night Garden. So. Oh, so good,
0: so good. Yeah, she's one of my like all time favorite. I will read anything she writes, anything. And then. Um, When you look at fairy tale retellings, which is also a huge passion of mine, um, Donna Jo Napoli, N-A-P-O-L-I, is a young adult children's writer Mm -hmm. who literally, when I first started thinking, I'm going to get published in children's, I was like, I'm going to write novelizations of fairy tales, all of them, but they're all going to be like, you know, realistic historical, you know, setting, you know, like, (laughs) and then I found uh, Donna Jo's work and I went, oh. She does exactly what I wanted to do, but better. At
1: least you know it was a good idea. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so I had to come up with another concept. But um, she, I, I highly recommend Serena, which is a novel where she takes The Little Mermaid and she takes Greek mythology about the sirens and meshes them together. And so it's a mashup of Greek mythology and Hans Christian Andersen. It's awesome. And it, um, it's not a happy story, unlike Disney. But she really does do her research with the Greek mythology and and uh, Hans Christian Andersen uh, story. That and, very yeah, and then um, another one I highly recommend is Beast, which is Beauty and the Beast told from the Beast's perspective before he even meets Beauty. Before you know, like he's uh, living as a lion, and he's I think he's um, I don't want to say he's a prince, but he's definitely like a high up. Dude in in Persia, same thing. Donna Jo Napoli. Oh, that's Donna too. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Donna Joe. And then and then and then another one that made me go, oh, I can't write any of this because I wanted to do the it, you know Cinderella, being one of the most like universal. And actually, I know people have like um, criticisms about Cinderella's story, which I I kind of agree to, but um, it is still one of my favorite stories because she transcends all this hardship and she does it mostly on her own mm-hmm. and she fools everyone into thinking who she is so my whole thing is cinderella's a spy like she's a secret agent like like that's and that's actually another concept that i want to do so i actually think it's a lot of fun to do that to to have that that um that narrative of cinderella and it's cinderella
1: secret agent's fantastic yes
0: and that's actually my next like once once i finish all the other things i want to do a secret agent cinderella novel or at least a short story um and uh, and I'm fine with other people writing it too because guess what we're all going to tell different versions of it, right? Yeah. Um, but um, and Cinderella has been retold how many zillions of times. Oh, right. The first and it's oldest monkey
1: king, like in that respect, it
0: absolutely <laughs> is. And actually, what's funny is that the oldest known version of Cinderella did come from the China Chinese area era. Oh, cool. So and um, instead of a glass slipper or a, or a, or a, or. A, the grim slippers. <laughs> it was um, slippers from, a f- you know, gifted to her from a fish instead of a tree or a fairy godmother. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, and the fish, well, the fish in um, Chinese culture is a symbol of good luck and wealth. So it could be a lot of times probably because if you can eat a fish, that means you're you've got money. <laughs> I don't really know if that's the reason I'm going to make that up and call it like, you know, my seems own seems legit. Yeah, yeah, my, own, yeah, yeah. My, own, my own my own cultural appropriation. But of my own, like you know, ancestral culture, um, and so I was like, I'm going to make this like Cinderella, Asian Chinese Cinderella story from a novelization perspective, and it's going to be realistic. And then, of course, Donna Jo writes Bound, which is you know, and it and and, uh, and makes it you know something that I, I read and I'm going, oh, I should not touch it. Um, <laughs> I'll eventually touch it. I'll go back someday, but um, but yeah. So I I'm a huge fan of her work, and it, there's not a lot of magic, but it's told with. Details and awesomeness. Um, and then, who else? Were there any other questions?
2: <laughs> well, outside of Cinderella Super Spy, yeah. What is next for you?
0: Oh yay! Um, so I have a couple novels now that I'm sho- I'm I'm almost ready to shop around again. And um, the first one is for again younger readers so it's historical fiction even though it's set in 1940 and it's about a girl who illegally immigrates from China into San Francisco's Chinatown and the backstory behind that was you know I didn't know at the time growing up that there was all this racism towards Chinese folks um ever since the gold rush era. Um, and so learning about like Angel Line, the history of Angel Island, which as you guys having lived in San Francisco might be a little more familiar with than most people. Um, it's traditionally called the Ellis Island of the West Coast, um, but it's nothing at all like Ellis Island historically when it was open between 1910 and 1940. Um, Ellis Island you literally didn't have to wait very long to get through. You could probably get through in the same day. At Angel Island, people were detained. And a, lot, a huge majority of those people were from China. And there was a reason for that. Because, and we'll go all the way back to the gold rush days. In uh, 1849 in California, what happened? The California gold rush, right? Oh, right. Yeah. And so, what happened? Yeah, the 49ers. Exactly. That's where they got their name. Yee! And um, and so people from all over the world came to the United States, specifically California, to make their fortune and find gold. Now, ironically enough, the people who actually made their fortunes were people who supplied, you know, the tools to the gold, to the gold Levi's. miners. Levi's. And Levi's. <laughs> yeah. And clothes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So those were the people who really made out. But, but at the time, anyone, if you're a poor farm boy, could somehow get the, you know, ticket. To cross the ocean and get to America, you go to California and make your fortune. And a lot of huge influx from um, Ireland and China. And those were the people who built the railroads, you know, to cross, you know, the continent um, to get to California. So more people could go and and futilely mine for gold. Um, (laughs) And so what happens after the gold rush, uh, within, like, you know, easily 20 years the gold bust right and whatever and then just in terms of like we as people when do we as people if we are in an economic downturn economic downturn you're broke you don't have a job and you're you've lived here for a little while and you see this influx of folks that are not at all looking like you what do you usually would you know say you would say those foreigners are taking our jobs and of the two most recent foreigners the Irish versus the Chinese, who would look more foreign to these people who were, are of mostly European descent, the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so in 1882, we have the first racist Immigration exclusion act, exclusion act towards Chinese people from China. And there was a quota that was put every year annually of 105 Chinese people could go from China into the United States, immigrate from China to the United States. And there were a few exceptions that people could get around, which is you could be of a different status. If you're a certain status, you could get exclusions um, from that, exempt from that 105 quota. If you were a scholar, if you're a student, if you're a merchant, and or if you were... Uh, the son or daughter of an actual American citizen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that law was in effect for from 1882 until 1945. Wow! World War Two. Yeah. And so that which that time period definitely includes the Angel Island time period of 1910 to 1940, and so. A lot of those Chinese were detained for, you know, immigrants were detained for a long time because there were ways around this, you know, law, of course, loopholes that people would find. If people really wanted to to make to go, they could figure out a way. Um, And a lot of them came illegally, claiming to be sons or daughters of Chinese-American citizens. Um, because of what happened in Chinatown t- at that era was, it was a, a lot of times a bachelor society. A lot of women were not allowed into San Francisco from China. So the men would go back to China, have their kids, and then come and then bring them over. And sometimes these kids were not really their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would sell identities or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or and a lot of these, um, you know, people who really wanted to make a better a life for themselves would pay these these Chinese American citizens to have their kids be someone else's kid and and make their fortune. So it's fascinating. There's like of uh, this this whole like tradition of illegal immigration from 1882 to 1945. After World War II ended. When China was our ally, <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was. It's just absolutely a fascinating time period that I did a lot of research on because it's. And then, then of course, yeah, people. Yeah, you know, obviously. Yeah, and then of course, people who who don't know me would be like, "Well, is this is this sounds like a fascinating story? Is this from your family history?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> my parents didn't come to the California until nineteen sixty something, you know." And so, um, but again, it's like learning of another. Another layer of history that we are again in the mainstream don't don't have in our consciousness, yeah. and and that's where the cool stuff happens is is underneath what oh I can't wait know. to
1: see what you do with that
0: I hope so I hope it's fun well and I also had another agenda and I was like a more of a a beginning writer when I wrote the first so I'm still struggling with that whole I'm a different writer than I was when I finished the first draft of the book mm-hmm. so then how much do I rewrite do I chuck it out and rewrite the whole thing again or do I fix what I can, of it, right. yeah, it's a very interesting struggle um, that I'm that I'm dealing with right now in terms of. Um what the next step what is? To do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So. Wow. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. I can't wait to see. <laughs> yeah. Thank I you. Tell, I can tell you care. I know you're knowledgeable. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I see nothing but success, Emily. Thank you so much for chatting with. Well, us Well, thank today. you so
0: much for having me. This was a lot of fun. This
1: was. It was really yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> for folks listening, where can they find you up more about you and check um, out your books? And-
0: I have a website, EmilyJung.com, and I will spell my last name again because it is counterintuitive to most English spellers. It is J. I A N is a Nancy G.
1: So EmilyJang.com. Yes. Got it. All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Josh.